This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, through the lens of disability. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I'm thrilled to have you here. So, what is on the examination table for this episode? I am going to be talking about 2020's Tom Blood, directed and written by Jacob Chase and based on his short film Larry, and starring Azzy Robertson, Julian Jacobs, and John Gallagher Jr. Our main character is a young autistic boy named Oliver, and I'm not someone that has been diagnosed with autism or autism spectrum disorder, ASD. So I'm going to incorporate the perspective by pulling in bits from the Autism Self Advocacy Network and giving an overview of autism, of what it is, and how it prevents as well as bits from an amazing piece about this film and representation of individuals that are on the spectrum by Wesley Laura, is over at Bloody Disgusting. As always, I'll link all sources in the show notes. Lots to get into with this film, so let's jump in with our plot synopsis. Oliver is a young, nonverbal autistic boy who uses a smartphone to communicate with people. He attends school and is mostly taken care of by his mother, Sarah. His father, Marty, spends most of his time at work trying to make ends meet. Sarah and Marty's marriage has become difficult to the extent that Marty moves out. One night, Oliver sees an app on his smartphone, Misunderstood Monsters, narrating the story of a monster named Larry who... Just once a friend. After he reads the story, lights go out by themselves. He plays with an app on his tablet uh, uh, that identifies faces and identifies a face in an empty space next to him. At school, Oliver is bullied by his classmates due to his condition. They lure him into a field and take his phone, throwing it out into the field. One night, Sarah organizes a sleepover so Oliver can become more social. Three boys who bullied him come over. Oliver hides a tablet as he is terrified of it. One of the boys retrieves the tablet and reads the story. The lights go out and Larry appears, but he can only be seen through the tablet's camera. Larry attacks Byron, one of the boys, and the terrified boys all blame Oliver for the incident. In the following days, Sarah begins to see the same strange things Oliver did. Through Oliver's tablet, Larry says he wants to take Oliver back to his home world. Marty takes Oliver to his night shift parking lot attendant job. Larry, revealing a skeletal creature similar to a ghoul, begins to stalk them. When Marty witnesses Larry picking Oliver off, picking Oliver up from the ground, he finally believes Sarah and Oliver. 
They break the tablet and assume everything is over. Byron is traumatized from the incident at Oliver's house, but comes clean on what really has happened, absolving Oliver of the blame. Because after um, Byron had been attacked with a piece of furniture and thrown up against him, all of the boys, so scared, and I think not really knowing what to do, had blamed Oliver. So, um, it is revealed that Byron and Oliver were once good friends, but their friendship ended badly because Oliver accidentally hurt Byron, which also caused their moms to break up their friendship. Both reconcile, and Oliver and Byron become friends again. One night at work, Marty is attacked by Larry, who can travel through electricity and usually communicates with people through screens. Marty is hurt, but alive. Larry proceeds to attack Oliver at his house, intending to take the boy. Sarah trashes all, electric all electrical devices in the house, but the TV uh, finishes playing Larry's story before she can shut it off. Larry takes physical form of being able to move in real life without the use of a screen and begins to stalk them through the house. Oliver takes Sarah to the field where there is no electricity for Larry to follow them with, but Larry uses Oliver's phone that the boys threw earlier to trap them there. Oliver must take Larry's hand to enter Larry's world. At the last second, Sarah takes Larry's hand instead, offering to go with him and become his friend instead of Oliver. In the final moments, Oliver looks Sarah in the eye for the first time, something Sarah has struggled with ever since Oliver was diagnosed. Larry takes Sarah, and they both vanish, leaving Oliver alone. In the aftermath, Oliver lives with Marty, and they intend to deal with their loss. Marty gets more involved with Oliver's therapy. One night, the lights go out again, and strange noises are heard downstairs. Marty grabs his phone and sees Oliver and Sarah, who has now taken the place of Larry, um, and seemingly lives in his world. Uh, and the two are playing happily. Sarah tells her son, I'll protect you, as Marty smiles. Larry's fate is left unknown. Alright, so let's start the discussion by quickly describing what autism or autism spectrum disorder is. This is from the Autism Research Institute. Autism is a developmental disorder with symptoms that appear within the first three years of life. Its formal di diagnostic name is Autism Spectrum Disorder. The word spectrum indicates the, that autism appears in different forms with varying levels of severity. While it is most frequently diagnosed in that toddler stage of development or in younger school age kids, it can be diagnosed later, uh, such as kind of in the teen years or as an adult. There is not a specific cause of autism, um, and many of the theories that have been kind of thrown around have been debunked, most notably the connection to vaccines. According to the Center for Disease Control in 2020, it occurs in approximately 1 out of 54 children. This 
it is significant because for many years it is it was considered much more rare and occurring in one out of two thousand children. To give this a little bit of context, ASD wasn't clearly defined until it appeared in the DSM three in the eighties as a specific diagnosis. Given this element of newness grouped with our continued and evolving knowledge of ASD and the increased efforts around screening in those early years, it's easy to see the correlation of increased di diagnosis, especially in those early years. So how does ASD present? Well, like any disability, it isn't a monolith. And the way it impacts a person's day-to-day very greatly. I really loved how the Autism Self-Advocacy Network breaks it down, so uh, this is from their website. Number one, we think differently. We may have very strong interests in things other people don't understand or seem to care about. We might be great problem solvers or play or pay close attention to detail. It might take us longer to think about things. We might have trouble with executive functioning. We like figuring out how to start and finish a task, moving on to a new task or making decisions. Routines are important for many autistic people, but can be hard for us to deal with surprises or unexpected changes. When we get overwhelmed, we might not be able to process our thoughts, feelings, and surroundings, which can make us lose control of our body. Number two, we process our senses differently. We might be extra sensitive to things like bright lights or loud sounds. We might have trouble understanding what we hear or what our senses tell us. We might not notice if we are in pain or hungry. We might do the same movement over and over again. This is called stimming and it helps us regulate our senses. For example, we might rock back and forth or play with our hands, or hum. Number three, we move differently. We might have trouble with fine motor skills or coordination. It can feel like our minds and bodies are disconnected. It can be hard for us to start um, or stop moving. Speech can be extra hard because it requires a lot of coordination. We might not be able to control how loud our voices are, or might not be able to speak in all ease at all, even though we can't understand what other people say. Number four, we communicate differently. We may talk by repeating things we have heard before or by scripting out what we want to say. Some autistic people use augmentative or alternative communication to communicate. For example, we may communicate by typing on a computer spelling on a letter board, or pointing to pictures on an iPad. Some people may also communicate with behavior or the way that we act. Not every autistic person can talk, but we all have important things to say. Number five, we socialize differently. Some of us might not understand or follow social rules that non-autistic people made up. We might be more direct than other people. Eye contact might make us uncomfortable. We might have a hard time controlling our body language or facial expressions. 
which can confuse non-autistic people or make it hard to socialize. Some of us might not be able to guess how people feel. This doesn't mean we don't care how people feel. We just need people to tell us how they feel so we don't have to guess. Some autistic people are extra sensitive to other people's feelings. And number six, we might need help with daily living. It can take a lot of energy to live in a society built for non-autistic people. We may not have the energy to do some things in our daily lives. Or, parts of being autistic can make doing those things very hard. We may need help with things like cooking, doing our jobs, or going out. We might be able to do things on our own sometimes, but need help other times. We might need to take more breaks so we can recover our energy. So I think just by going through um, some of that, it's very easy to see some of those connections is based off of what we talked about in plot synopsis. Uh, you know, for example, we have Oliver who's using um, his phone to communicate. There's also uh, a scene or a moment in the scene where the boys come over for the sleepover where you see that he is stemming. And there's a couple instances of this throughout the film. And at that point, Sarah um, makes a point to let the boys know when Oliver is playing with his hands that, oh, this is stemming and this is something Oliver does. It's a really great um, and kind of simple uh, not kind of elongated moment, but I think it's really effective and important. So, now that the foundation of what autism or ASD is, uh, let's shift gears and let's talk about the movie. And again, I, I'm going to be co uh, combining some of my thoughts um, with what uh, Wesley Laura shared in their, in their piece, Autism Within Horror, Come Play, and The Next Steps for Representation. So I think I have mentioned before that overall representation of folks with intellectual or developmental disabilities isn't really plentiful in comparison to other physical disabilities and even mental health issues or illnesses where we've had more diverse and nuanced representation in those areas, IDD has largely continued to be uh, portrayed in more generalized broad strokes. Laura highlights uh, some examples of autistic characters in or uh, He references Cube and Predator in particular, and some of the tropes they fall into. The savant trope, where a character that's on the spectrum has to have an enhanced or almost supernatural ability in some area. And the general, for lack of a better word, magification of ASD, where it is given kind of this otherworldly or kind of mystical treatment. A real strength of complaint is that I think it mostly steers clear of these traps. We have a brief moment with Oliver early in the film where he's in class and is asked to answer a math question by the teacher. 
Instead of the film revealing Oliver to be a math genius in this moment, he answers incorrectly. Maybe it's because he hasn't been paying attention, or maybe it's just because this is something uh, he doesn't know. And just like everyone else in the class, this is a new uh, kind of skill of math that he's learning. We see that he hasn't played with him in this class as well, which is uh, something that a number of kids with a whole large array of disabilities may need when they are in school. But I think is often forgotten or lost over more times than not when having this kind of representation in a film. This scene in the classroom also shows some of the difficulties that Oliver has with socialization. We have our bullies, which is pretty standard issue when you have a student with a disability. One student, Byron, uh, I think is mad that Oliver gets to have his phone with him in class, and he doesn't. It is pointed out by both the teacher and another student that this is an accommodation for Oliver so that he can communicate and participate in class. I don't really get the sense that Oliver is new to the school, and I do get a sense that based on the other student chiming in to defend Oliver a bit, that the kids in the class do have some kind of understanding of Oliver's disability. So this did seem a little bit off to me, but these are also really young kids. Uh, I remember, you know, I, and I think I've shared a little bit about this on past episodes, but, you know, I recall having my mom and I needing to go and talk to parents and teachers and some students about my disability when I first started school. It didn't stop a few folks from still being assholes, but I do think that it probably stopped them from doing so out of a place of ignorance or fear, maybe. Um... This may speak to an experience that is shared by a lot of us that navigated school uh, with disabilities. I think that, you know, this is part of that uh, kind of underlying thread, thematic thread that runs throughout the entirety of the film, which is loneliness and isolation. Before talking about how loneliness and isolation plays into Oliver's story, I want to talk about the parents, Sarah and Marty. From the beginning, we see that this is a relationship that's kind of falling apart. We see Marty sleeping on the couch. And then the next morning, we have Oliver asking if they are moving because he sees the boxes, his bad stuff. And they assure him that he is not going anywhere, but Marty is the one that is moving out. They don't tell him right away, um, which... Um, you know, I know that that's such a difficult thing, um, that I have to talk about with kids. Um, you know, my parents were divorced, but they were divorced, um, you know, basically when I was born. So I don't really have any recollection of, uh, you know, having, you know, that conversation with learning about, you know, us living separately, but that would have been a conversation that they would have needed to have with my sister. So no doubt that it's difficult and not a conversation that a parent is looking forward to having with their kid. 
Sarah just kind of drops it on him and, you know, says, oh, well, I see that your dad, I see that you notice that your dad isn't here. And I don't know, like, maybe a little bit of prep. Um, we know that Oliver is getting, uh, you know, some interventions. We see him go to speech therapy. There's probably some other um, OT, occupational therapy. Um, you know, there there's probably some other stuff that, that is happening that we don't see as well. And, you know, bringing a therapist or something to kind of help with that may be useful. But, you know, I, I give grace here because she's She's got to do what she's got to do. But, um, I don't know. But anyway, we see that the parents aren't getting along. Sarah has dedicated basically all of her time to Oliver and has some resentment towards Marty because Marty works outside the home. Oliver loses his phone in the field. It's Marty who brings in the iPad that we use for of the duration of the film where uh he finds it in the lost and found at his job so he brings it home and oliver is very happy to have the uh, the ipad and sarah is upset because she says hey you get to come in and play hero and have fun with oliver where you know the rest of the time i'm the one doing the hard work Taking him to all of his appointments, making sure he's getting to school, um, laying with him when he has, um, you know, nightmares and can't sleep. And so there's that resentment. And it just sounds like they really haven't had conversations um, about how each other feel. And again, kind of isolating each other, even though they're in the same home. And so this kind of caused a huge rift in their relationship. We don't really see Sarah with friends um, outside the home as well. And after the slumber party. Um, so one thing that I don't think the plot synopsis makes clear or doesn't explicitly state is that Byron's mom, kind of our main bully who shifts into being a friend, uh, the, the mom is Jennifer, who used to be friends with Sarah, but after, you know, this altercation between, uh, Byron and Oliver, their friendship kind of broke apart, too. And when, you know, she invites Byron over for a slumber party, there's kind of this hope that maybe that friendship can be salvaged that maybe she can you know have you know someone that she can connect with that's kind of outside the home and it goes terribly because the slumber party gets uh called off early so uh and you know they're kind of back to where they were in terms of you know Jennifer thinking that Oliver is this violent and impulsive kid. And it's a really heartbreaking moment because you can tell that Sarah genuinely wants to, 
you know, have Oliver have friends and she wants to have Jennifer back as a friend because afterwards, uh, you know, she says, hey, uh, you know, Oliver, maybe we rushed into this. Maybe we're not ready to have friends yet. And it just, I don't know. It it made me sad. So it really underscores just how isolated uh, Sarah is. And then on the same kind of uh, on different side to the same coin. You have Marty, who we only really see outside of the home at work. That's kind of like his role. He is the financial provider to the family. And so we don't see him with friends either. And yeah, it's just, you know, I think I've talked in past episodes about, you know, the increased divorce rates for parents of uh, kids with disabilities. So. Yeah, it's just, it's it's a rough go for them. Um, but let's shift back to Oliver um, and his kind of loneliness and isolation. So like I said, loneliness and isolation is really kind of the, uh, the theme of the film. And we get this with Oliver being alone in the room. We get this with his introduction to Larry's story because Larry is all alone and is looking for a friend just like Oliver. And that's really how he kind of finds his way in um, and kind of uses that entry point to connect with Oliver. One thing that I do find that's kind of interesting is that we don't get this moment where, you know, Oliver and Larry do become friends you know in similar films you know maybe you all have this kid that is making friends with this other entity you know like when there's a ghost in the house or something you have the child that's like oh this is my friend but Oliver doesn't really ever call Larry a friend now part of this can be because of ASD but I think it's because Oliver is like, nah, I don't think that Larry really comes with the best intentions here. I'm pretty scared. And this isn't good vibes, good feels. So, um, but, you know, we kind of, uh, the, the connection between Larry and Oliver on this front is laid very, uh, very early from, I think, one of the first scenes of the film. It's not the first scene. So that we understand how Larry kind of gets in. You know, Oliver has difficulty connecting with his with his peers at school. Um, which I talked about a little bit in that scene with uh, bullies. So um, it's just, it's kind of heartbreaking to see. But it is interesting that we instantly make that the connection with Monster. And then, again, kind of a connection with his mom as well. Now, I only say this from my own experience and from my experience of working with youth with disabilities. But I do think that it's a, a common thing of loneliness and isolation, especially if you don't have that connection to other kids with disabilities, with chronic conditions, who have kind of this intimate understanding of some of those day-to-day -day challenges because it's difficult to talk to folks who don't have that understanding. 
um, especially at those younger ages, because they just may not be able to kind of fully understand. Now, depending on how you talk to them or how, you know, parents can help with those conversations, that may be a lot, a lot easier. So it can be a really complicated process. So I I think that this is kind of a common experience that Oliver is going through here, but I don't want to underscore that this is probably heightened by, you know, his difficulties with socialization and communication on top of everything else. The moment in the film that I think kind of underscores this idea a little bit is after the slumber party, after Byron had been attacked by Larry, uh, Sarah and Oliver go over to their home because Jennifer has reached out to say, you know, hey, Byron is traumatized by what's happened and he won't speak, he won't eat. There's really something going on and I want to talk with you. And so they go over and Byron is just kind of sitting there on the couch glazed over a little bit until Oliver goes over and one of the things uh, throughout the film is one of the ways that Oliver communicates is through Spongebob Squarepants. So he pulls up he he pulls up like this uh, clip of Spongebob where he apologizes where I think it's uh, Squidward apologizing to Spongebob and uses that to apologize to Byron for what happened, uh, even though it wasn't his fault. And this kind of breaks, uh, you know, through to Byron a little bit and Byron is able to talk a little bit about what happened and, you know, admits that it wasn't Oliver's fault at all. And, you know, we forget that kids are not only taught certain things, but they learn by how the adults around them uh, act. And so probably seeing the way that his mom was behaving towards Oliver, that probably influenced Byron's actions a little bit, you know, being fearful and... Um, you know, that little bit of anger, perhaps. Um, so when he's able to step out of that and just have this connection with Oliver, I think that we see that, you know, kids can be much more empathetic and understanding um, than we often leave the grace to be, especially with, you know, what we think are things that may be outside of their understanding. Um, we We need to maybe give kids more of the benefit of the doubt in these instances, I think. So the last thing I want to talk about with the film proper is the ending. And I'm a little bit torn and I am really interested to hear other people's maybe thoughts on this, um, who have seen the film and, you know, maybe have a different read, but um, Sarah and Oliver go to the field and are having this encounter with Larry, and Sarah sacrifices herself basically to save her son, and 
this is tied up with that bow at the very end where she says that she'll protect him. So, you know, very much like she, it's, it's out there that she sacrificed herself for him. And I don't know, it, this doesn't sit with me, I, I think, as well as it could. I don't know if it's just the way that it's executed or I should say the way that Sarah's executed or if it's if there's something else. I, I guess I'm still kind of struggling with it because there's something to me that's troubling about this idea of, you know, this idea of Oliver really being kind of the the death of his family and of his mom. You know, she, throughout the film, she's exhausted and running back and forth with him. And, uh, you know, she's, she's the primary caregiver. And essentially it costs her her life. And, and I, I don't think that's what the film is saying at all. But it's just something that sat with me when the movie ended and I turned off my TV and I was like, no, I don't know about this. I, I, I understand just the overall theme of, you know, parents wanting to sacrifice themselves for their kids and doing anything to protect their kids. I get that. And, and I don't think that's a bad sentiment at all, but I don't know. Even that seems, I guess, a little bit tropey, perhaps overdone to some degree, but I get it. It's a, it's a timeless and, you know, important message. You know, obviously I'm saying this is someone who isn't a parent. So I'm, I, I think I'm probably lacking that perspective to really make that resonate with me. And that's, you know, me being very upfront about that. But I don't know. Um, it just feels, it just feels icky, especially because we do have this, weird connection between Oliver and Larry. You know, both of these individuals being quote-unquote misunderstood. You know, now Larry is stated as being a misunderstood monster. We never hear but uh, Oliver called a monster, but certainly not unheard of for folks with disabilities to um, you know, have that, that label. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. Also towards the end, we get the line from Sarah, good old Babadook call out here of why can't you be normal for just one moment? Um, so yeah, we just, you know, Oliver really brought brought down his mom so uh, i don't know a little a little off for me um but i i i can kind of also understand maybe what the film was really wanting to do with the ending i'm just interested if anyone else has perhaps a different read but those are just kind of my general thoughts on the film now one thing i do want to uh, as we kind of close up here is there was an interview with the director and writer um, 
in I think Business Insider, and I'll link it in the show notes where it really goes into why he wanted to create a story with um an autistic character at the center and why you know just kind of the the reasonings behind it um why he was passionate about it and some of the, the processes that went into it so in the interview he talks about uh how they had uh, i think seen uh, a number of actors that were autistic uh in casting but ended up going with um I, I'm probably mispronouncing the name Ozzy and Ozzy is not on the spectrum as far as I know so this goes uh I think to some of what uh Wesley talks about in his piece in terms of next steps of representation and something I've talked about especially in the episode uh, with The Quiet Place and Hush, the importance of having individuals with disabilities cast in these roles. I think it's really great that there was an effort to, you know, bring in actors that were on the spectrum uh, for the role, but it's interesting that ultimately it went to a non-disabled character or a non-disabled actor. So. I, I don't think that there's anything, you know, grievous about uh, Ozzy's performance. Uh, I think that it's well done. I I think he's fine. But, you know, again, it's just if he talks about, you know, is really important. My wife has this background of working uh, with kids, uh, I, I think specifically that are on the spectrum, but it may have just been um, other disabilities as well. Uh, so I, I really appreciated that perspective, but, you know, it as I've talked about before, it's about casting actors with disabilities in these roles because I think it adds just some of these moments and these nuances in the film that make it a lot more powerful and a lot stronger of a representation something that really steps it outside from being more of a stereotypical portrayal of a specific disease or condition to really showing you know how individuals with that disease or condition that disability are people how we navigate day to day um, strengths, weaknesses, goals, joys, sorrows, all of that. And again, I think actor does a great job here, but, you know, when I put it in comparison with, um, you know, going back to Quiet Place, you can make the argument that Reagan isn't necessarily the main character of Quiet Place. But the way that her disability is integrated into the world, part of the world, part of the family, I think there's just something that's really unique and special about that that I think probably does come from the fact that, A, 
it was really important for um i think the filmmakers john krasinski and i think um the producing team to hire an actor that was deaf but you know then having someone that was you know really taking that lead in terms of teaching um you know some ways to make sure that this representation did have some of these flourishes that just makes it feel more lived in um and and natural and realistic and i know that sounds like it's coming from well this is how uh one specific experience should look and so it should look this way across the board and that's not necessarily true and that's why i'm saying like i don't think that ozzy does a bad um job here i don't think that this is necessarily a bad portrayal um at all but just having these uh smaller moments i think could have um you know made certain things resonate a bit more that's all i'm i'm saying so um i hope i hope that comes off clear but uh yeah that's you know it's kind of part of i guess one of the the issues that I have with film. Um, also, you know, the film, I think it's fine. I don't think it's really great. Um, it's a little bit boring, I think, at points. Um, and it's it's got some good, decent jump scares, but, you know, I don't think it's it's kind of a thrill ride. So if you are someone who really likes kind of either the gore um and the gooeyness in horror or likes you know a lot of jump scares um someone is not going to serve you the most i think it's it kind of misses on those marks but um yeah but overall i i thought that the the portrayal of oliver was was really interesting and and i especially going back and reading, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, the passion that the director and writer had in making kind of our center character uh, uh, a young person with autism, I, I thought that was pretty cool. So, yeah, those are my thoughts on Home Play. Um, as always, Thank you so much for listening. And a huge thank you to Anatomy of a Scream and the Anatomy of a Scream Paw Squad for being the heart and home of Bodies of Four. If you want to reach out to me, um, seeing this movie and you want to share your own thoughts, um, whatever the case may be, maybe there's another movie uh, that is on your mind that you think would be interesting to talk about. Uh, always feel free to reach out. Just say, hey. Um, you can shoot me an email at bodiesofhorror@gmail.com. You can find me at uh, Instagram, Bodies of Horror Podcast. I like to post there. I think it's really fun. You can find me at Blue Sky Bodies of Horror. Um, over there, you can find me on X, uh, Bodies Horror. So I'm here, there, and everywhere so reach out say hello um it's always nice hearing from folks and i really appreciate those 
you that have reached out and said hey and shared your thoughts on different episodes. Um, I just got a message on Instagram from someone that had uh, listened to uh, the episode on The Purge and was going back and watching the franchise and said, hey, I'm reaching out because I know you go hard for this franchise. And, you know, I do. So um, I just love hearing from folks. So always feel free to reach out. So one thing I do neglect to do, and I'm going to try to do so, so much better about it in the future, is, uh, hey, you're here. You're listening to podcasts. Take a moment and rate, review um, on wherever you are listening to your podcast, Spotify, Apple, wherever. Um, I think now almost all platforms have that functionality, although I may be mistaken. Um, but it's really helpful in having people uh, find, uh, especially the Anatomy of a Scream feed. But, you know, letting folks know about Bodies of Horror, that's always uh, a super helpful thing. So if you could, it's a great way of just helping us, uh, you know, tackle those algorithms and helping other people find us. So, so with that said, until next time. Anatomy of a Scream, Pod Squad.